Um, before I begin um, sharing the message for today, I just want to have another word of prayer um, specifically for all the families um, of the Malaysian Airline plane and just the, you know, when I first heard about it, um, I just thought to myself, really? Did that just happen? It was just so shocking. Um, and I think, especially in light of what we have been talking about, you know, for the past few weeks, we've been going through um, a six-part series on the problem of pain and evil and suffering in the world. Um, and I think this is just a prime example of such um, tragic, just unnecessary um, loss of life. And so let's just have another word of prayer. Father God, uh, it's in moments like this when we hear such terrible news that we are reminded once again that we do live in a war zone that isn't just between two countries or a region, but it is a great controversy between you and between Satan. And Father, we are caught up in it. And I just pray that as we live day to day and go through the difficulties in our own personal lives as well as globally, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us strength to find hope <coughs> in the midst of the suffering. And I pray that today's message would give us some light as we continue to uh, look for the answer and look for um, the comfort that we need. And Father, I pray that uh, you'll be with me, guide my thoughts and my lips, and open our hearts so that we can hear your message for today. I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Anthony and Roy, while sharing their series on the problem of pain, suggested that we all can identify with this problem of pain because in greater degrees, um, we've all experienced what it's like to suffer. We've all experienced what it's like to be hopeless and to be in tears and to wonder why is this happening. And one of the things uh, that Anthony and Roy shared was that when we look at our own pain, yeah, it's very difficult to answer the question why. I mean, a six-part series isn't even enough. Um, but that perhaps the beginning of the understanding or at least the beginning of, of the comfort can happen when we, instead of looking at our own pain, we look at the God in pain. And that there's something about looking at Jesus that allows us to then find comfort and strength to go through our own pains as well. And what I want to do is today go a little deeper into who that is and how it is that Jesus provides light in our darkness. And so the sermon title is The Light of the World. Now, how many of you have heard those words, that phrase, the light of the world, Jesus is the light of the world, yeah? Yeah, we've maybe sung that song, you know? Uh, light of the world, you came down in darkness. But what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? And so what I want to do is actually trace some momentous occasions in human history. I know that sounds pretty grand, but I promise I'm not going to go through all of it. So it'll just be a few occasions in human history where we see this theme of light, and as we look at how that light is manifested, hopefully it will bring clarity as to how Jesus is the light of the world. And not only that, but how Jesus can be the light of my world. So first of all, I want to share uh, where this verse comes from. This is actually the verse where that phrase, light of the world, comes from. It says, when Jesus spoke against the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the question is, what is the context of this statement? Because whenever we study the Bible, we have to look at it in context. Otherwise, we can walk away from that, and it's a great song, but what does it mean? And so in order for us to understand this, like I said, I want to start from the beginning. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and it says that he created them in his image. Come on. Okay, there we go. 
God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, a lot of Jewish and Christian scholars believe that when Adam and Eve were created, they were created in God's image not only in terms of character, being like God, thinking like God, but also physically, that there was something about them, you know, two eyes, two arms, two feet, that reflected the image of God. And one of those uh, characteristics they believe is that uh, they were clothed in light, just as God and the angels are clothed in light. For example, um, in Psalm 104, verse 2, it says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor, splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. And, you know, whenever there's an angel that comes, everyone's like, ah! You know, and you always see the shining light and glory. And so the idea is that Adam and Eve were created in God's image to reflect his character, to reflect um, his attributes, but also that perhaps they were clothed in light. But unfortunately, what happened was when they stepped out of God's character, when they deviated from what God is like, and listened instead to the lies of the serpent, this is what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, the moment that they deviate from God's path and they disobey God's word, because they no longer have that image of God whole, they realize they're naked. It's almost as if they, their, their um, clothing of light has just diluted. And all of a sudden they realize they're naked and they try to cover their shame and their nakedness with fig leaves. But it didn't bring them security. Because if it had, they wouldn't uh, do what they do next, which is they run away. It says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. For the first time, they feel afraid. For the first time, they feel ashamed. And even though they've done their best to cover themselves up, they're still insecure. Insecure about how God thinks of them, insecure in each other's eyes, and we see that later on, they, they, you know, they start blaming each other, insecure in their own eyes, and this is the beginning of the pain and the suffering and, and the evil that um, plagues us still today. But the good news is that Jesus, God rather, didn't leave them in their shame and their nakedness and their fear. And when God comes to them, he doesn't come in order to say, aha, you are now naked. Right? They feel naked. But this is what God does. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And clothed them. Now the Hebrew word for light is actually very similar to the Hebrew word for skin. In fact, there's only one letter difference and they're also homonyms, so like two, T-W-O, and two, T-O-O, right? It's only one letter different, and it sounds the same. Well, that's how these two words for Hebrew for light and skin is, are. So even though their clothing of light is perhaps gone, God puts on this clothing of skin 
And what it symbolizes, and of course they might not realize this at the time, but what it symbolized was that Jesus was going to cover their nakedness and their shame. That separation that they now felt because they were afraid of God. God says, you know what? You're afraid because you're naked? Let me cover your nakedness so you don't have to be afraid to be next to me. Let me cover your nakedness so that we can once again talk together. I'm going to cover you with this, with this skin. Now, garments of skin, where did it come from? Even though the text doesn't go into details, we can only assume that this garment of skin came from an animal. And if you think about it, God had to be the first one who had to take his precious creation that he created, that is innocent, and God had to be the first to take that animal, to take that life, in order to clothe Adam and Eve. And he did it not because he did anything against this animal. I bet he loved that animal, but he did it as a symbol of what he would one day do, that he would one day die in their place, because I'm in Eve, in disobedience, we're supposed to die. But he says, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to cover your nakedness. And so he taught Adam and Eve to teach their children, their children's children, to do this. The animal sacrifices were not to appease the anger of the gods, which is what the other, um, eventually, people began to believe. But that was not the original intent. God's original intent was to show them, I'm going to clothe your nakedness. I'm going to provide for you so that you are not ashamed and afraid to come to me. But instead, this idea became so thwarted and polluted by Satan, the very one who got them to sit in the first place, that he got people eventually to give not just animal sacrifices, but child sacrifices. And their thought was, God is upset with me. I have to appease him by offering this. And through my offering, I can go before God. But what they were doing was like covering themselves with fig leaves. It still didn't give them peace. It still didn't give them security because that's not how we come to God. God is already there saying, let me cover you. Let me cover you. Hundreds and thousands of years go by where the people just got this idea wrong. And eventually God tries to share the truth once again to Abraham and his descendants, but they still get it wrong. And we fast forward a few thousand years and we get to a group of people who are slaves in Egypt. And God comes to this very weak group. I mean, if you think about it, today, if we were to do some you know, massive global project or something that was really crucial, we wouldn't go to the country or the group, the ethnic group that has you know, the lowest socioeconomic status or you know, the least educated. We would try to go to a powerful nation, try to get them to influence the rest of the world. But that's not how God works. He goes to this slave nation, this group of people who don't really know God, they have a vague idea, who have no power, who are not organized politically or in any other way. But God goes to them, brings them out of Egypt, and not just takes them into a, a, a you know, promised land where they become a nation, but he does something more. This is what he says to Moses, He's, who's the leader of that group. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This is God once again trying to show the people, I want to be with you. And I will be the one to make sure that I do whatever it, it takes for us to be together. And the, the sanctuary is just a fancy word for a holy place. And another word that they called the sanctuary was tabernacle, which is another fancy word for a tent. <laughs> Basically, God says, Pitch me a tent so I can be with you. 
Because in the desert, they were all in tents. So God doesn't say, build me this you know, pyramid. No, he says, build me a tent. And so they do. And what happens is this amazing, and this is just one artist's imagination of it. What happens is once they build this tent, okay, it's a little bigger than the rest, but it's just a tent. And what happens is God's glory physically moves in. Um, and you can read about that in Exodus. God's glory is in a pillar of fire, and, and, and he's physically there. And you can, I, I, you know, I think to myself, man, if I were a child, or even as an adult, right, in the middle of the night, you're anxious about the future. What am I going to eat tomorrow? Or you're a little child and you're afraid. You're in the desert, there's poisonous serpents and scary animals, and it's, you know, um, not a lot of water. If you're anxious, you have a nightmare, you can wake up, look outside of your tent opening, and see this massive pillar of fire, and know God is with us. It just reassured them that God wanted to be with his people. And you would think this was enough. You'd think that this, yeah, this, they will understand. They didn't understand the sacrificial system, but surely they will understand the sanctuary and all the messages that came with that, as well as this visible representation of God's glory that was with them. But unfortunately, this was not enough either. This was not enough either. Hundreds of years go by, this group settle into uh, a land and you know, they become known as a nation called Israel. And what happens is uh, there's a king named Solomon, and he decides, you know what? I'm in this beautiful temple. God deserves something better than a tent. I'm going to build a permanent edifice for him. And he does. And as it says, uh, I love this, this scene. Imagine it with me. It says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the, of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Here's a, another artist's imagination of that story. Can you imagine? Golden. This is a golden temple now. And so the glory of God would just bounce off the golden walls. And it was this luminous sight. Surely this was enough for the people to realize that God loved them, God wanted to be with them, God was powerful, He is the one that they should worship. But did they? No. Hundreds of years go by, and I don't know if you remember the sermon I preached a while ago on um, how Jeremiah tried to warn them, please just listen to God, but they don't. It's a very sad story. And eventually, um, there's, you know, we, we hear about the exile, we hear about the people who are then you know, uh, separated, but do we hear about what God is suffering and going through in that time? It's actually recorded in the Bible in many, many places. But the saddest part for me is in um, Ezekiel 10, and I'm not putting it out because it's quite a lengthy chapter, I'll just narrate it for you. In Ezekiel 10, there is this vision that Ezekiel has and the vision is of God's glory, which had filled the temple, was always there, right? But here's what happened. Even though this was there, people didn't worship God. They started worshiping the sun god, and the moon god, and the god of the stars, lesser lights instead of the god who created those lights. People stopped going to the temple. It's hard for us to believe. 
but the temple became so dilapidated and it basically was in ruins. No one ever went anymore. Even the priests hardly were there. And this is, um, you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 22. There are stories of a few kings that attempt reformation. And, and one of those times, um, one of the kings, and they both were like little, they're like six-year-old king and an eight-year-old king. And they both, you know, as a little kid, are like, let's repair the temple. And the people are like, okay, they give money, and they, you know, they start repairing, and the priest finds a book. And he's like, what's this? Oh, it's written by Moses. And it's basically Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And they were like, whoa, I've never seen this before. They had totally forgotten about the scriptures. Like for hundreds of years, no one had read them. Even the priests or religious leaders hadn't seen them before. So they like dusted off and they read it out loud to the king and the whole, everyone's like, we haven't been following any of that. And they're shocked and they're stunned in the Reformation for a short while, but then they go right back. So after this happens again and again, in Ezekiel 10, there's this extremely sad vision where God's glory, God, you know, says to Ezekiel, the people have left me. My, my house is in ruins. Like, it was literally in ruins. And he says, they've rejected me. And, and what happens when you're rejected over and over again? I mean, the, long, the longer you linger, the more you're actually refusing to accept the person's decision, right? So God says, you know what? I won't cling on. Still, after all this rejection, you want me to leave? I will respect your decision. I'll leave. And in Ezekiel 10, what happens is the glory of God, this pillar of fire, slowly moves out of the most holy place. It goes through the holy place. Dialogue, dialogue. Slowly moves out of the holy place, goes into the, the, uh, the courtyard of the temple and then slowly moves to the eastern gate and leaves. And, and it's a very slow process, lingering as if he's hoping somebody will say, Stop! I want to be with you. Don't leave, God. But nobody does. No one cares. So then, God leaves. So the pillar of fire is gone. But he doesn't leave without a promise to come back. In my other sermon I shared about in Jeremiah and in Lamentations, God says, I have a hope and a future for you and I will bring you back. And so even though they don't want God back, He already has a plan on how to seduce them back to Him. He has, already has a plan on how to get them to, to be in a relationship with Him again. And so this is a prophecy that He leaves behind. He says, The glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace says the Lord of hosts. So even though he physically isn't there, he is willing to come back anytime anyone says come back. But unfortunately, no one really does for 400 years. There is in the Old Testament, and then there's a break, did you know, between Malachi and Matthew. There's a 400 year silence where there's no prophet. There's no message from God. Nor do the people seek it. That's why there's silence. Did you know that? 400 years of silence. And it's in after 400 years of silence that this prophecy is fulfilled. How? This time it's not a pillar of fire. It's not the Shekinah glory. This is how 
the light comes back. It says in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God came to dwell with His people, not as a pillar of fire this time, not clothed in this, you know, majestic glory, but clothed in swaddling clothes, in the form of a babe, in the dark of night, not in a golden temple, but in a smelly barn. And 30 years later, he comes to this temple, this temple that doesn't have the pillar of fire anymore, this temple that was there, and people were going through all the rituals, doing all the sacrifices, but there was no meaning behind their actions. They didn't have assurance of peace. But Jesus comes to this temple, about AD 30. And he's, come, and he's come because it's the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Jews had uh, three feasts that they would have to come to. Everybody was required three times a year to come to the temple. This was one of those times, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now what the Jews would do during the Feast of Tabernacles is everybody would come and bring a tent. And they would pinch tent in Jerusalem for seven days. And it was a reminder to them of the time when their ancestors pitched tent in the wilderness, and it was a reminder to them that how God had led them through that journey and had brought them to the promised land. And so every year, they still do this in Israel. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles by pitching tents and living in that for one week. And what they would do every night is these four little boys who are of the priestly line, they would climb these ladders up to these really, really tall um, pillars that were, I think, 23 meters high. And what they would do is, um, in their hands, as they're climbing, somehow, they would carry jars containing 38 liters of oil. And they would climb to the very top, and they would take wick made from the garments of the priest's robes, and they would dunk all the oil and the wick inside the top of the pillar as a lampstand. And then they would light it on fire. And so then these pillars would just be blazing, and the light would be glorious, all night long it would burn. And all night long the Israelites would sing and would celebrate how God had guided them as a pillar of fire through the wilderness. They did this every night. Now the last night of the feast, they did this as normal. Then it's morning. By the way, here's a picture of what that might have looked like when they had lit the pillars on top. It's the very last day of the feast, seven days. And this is what happens, and this is where we get to John chapter 8. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, not only was this a trap for Jesus, 
It was also a trap for the woman. Now we know this because in that, according to God's law, um, it was actually quite difficult for anyone to be stoned. You know, we can look at that and say, wow, why did God give such harsh laws back then? Uh, and we could go into that um, another time. But I'll just give a brief um, uh, explanation of what it required for someone to even get to this place. In order for uh, uh, someone to be stoned for adultery, first of all, you had to be engaged, but then cheating on your fiancé, or married, and then uh, cheating on your husband. So it wasn't just, you know, you ha have premarital sex or you have sex um, before marriage. That's not when you get stoned. It's, it's when you're unfaithful to that legal contract you make um, to, to that one person. And what would happen is that you and the perfect, you know, other person, both of you um, had to be caught by at least two witnesses. And this is part of the, the law um, that was there, is that at least two people have to, and this is the checklist, see the two of you in bed with unmistakable behavior, with positive identity of the two individuals. Now, at least two people being able to do all those three things, um, at the same time, there was a law that was morally required by God that if you see anyone doing something wrong like this, it was your moral obligation to stop them, right? So for some, for so at least two people to have been able to check, 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 go through that list, not stop them, it's actually quite difficult. Do you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? And so God had all the things in place to prevent sin, not just punish sinners. Um, but they used the law to punish sinners instead of trying to prevent sin. And so instead of stopping this woman or doing something to, uh, you know, uh, prevent this from happening, they actually had to have set it up. Because in order for at least two witnesses to go through that and then drag her out, and meanwhile, notice there's no man there. And so um, the implication is that the man is part of this entrapment. They're all in it just to trap this woman in order to trap Jesus. So when they bring this woman before Jesus, they're putting the woman on trial, and they're putting Jesus on trial. And they're, they're going to now put him in front of the crowd to see what he will say. And you can imagine this woman. Can you? I mean, I can't even begin to imagine it, but here she is, has no idea what's going on, and is really dragged out, probably still half naked. It's not even quite morning yet, right? And she's being dragged to the crowd. It's not even though just a few people. Remember, everybody's here for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a large crowd of people that she is being publicly shamed in. And when they say to Jesus, what should we do with this woman? You can just imagine her cowering in fear because she knows she's a dead woman. She knows this is a trap. She knows she has no chance of escape because she, after all, it's not that she's innocent. She is guilty, right? Even though she was trapped into it, uh, she is guilty and she knows she cannot escape. And when Jesus says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, I, mean, I can imagine her kind of, you know, when you're, you know a blow is coming, you kind of, you're, you're getting ready for it. And I can almost imagine her just saying, any moment now, it's going to come, it's going to come. But she, she's cowering and she's waiting and she's flinching and nothing. And then she looks around. Jesus has to even ask her, is anyone condemning me? And she says, no one. 
no one. And, and this isn't just, oh, no one. No, she's shocked. No one. No one. And then here comes an even more shocking statement where Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go in peace. And the question is, how come they left? How come no one condemned her? There's a lot of theories as to what Jesus wrote on the ground. But one thing is for sure. Whatever he wrote on the ground was closely tied with that statement he makes, he who had no sin, let him cast the first stone. And it's a brilliant statement because what Jesus does is, he's not saying you have to be morally perfect in order to judge someone. Because if that were the case, we can't have any judgment at all. Murderers, thieves, we'll just have to let them all go, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. In context, what Jesus is saying is, you're, are you really innocent of the crime you're accusing this woman of? Don't you have a part to play? And these individuals who are hoping to put this woman on trial and Jesus on trial, all of a sudden find themselves on trial. All of a sudden, while they're pointing the finger at her and at Jesus, they realize that Jesus is looking into their hearts. And he does this in such a subtle way that not only does Jesus not condemn the woman, but he also does not condemn them. We often focus on how Jesus shows mercy to this woman. But do you realize he also let them go free? He didn't condemn them either. He just simply says, he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. It just causes everyone to look inwardly and realize, maybe I might not have committed the adultery with this woman, but I didn't do my moral obligation. I was trying to trap her. I'm trying to trap Jesus. There were so many things in their own hearts that they knew they were guilty of. And so one by one, they leave her alone. And what Jesus does is, not only does he elevate this woman so that she's equal to everyone else, but he also lets everyone else who thinks they're up here down and says, you who judge others, you are also guilty. We love to judge judgmental people. And we love to hate the haters. And God is saying, we are all the same. We are all the same. And so when Jesus tells her, neither do I condemn you, not only is he equalizing the field for everyone, but he's also letting everybody know you are all forgiven. The woman is forgiven, and those who left, those who tried to kill her and ultimately kill Jesus, they are also forgiven. But how can Jesus do this? How can Jesus forgive? I said that this was the last morning of the Feast of Tabernacles. At nighttime, they would do the lamp. In the morning, they would do something else. In the morning, what they would do is two priests would descend the 15 steps of the temple. And as they descended each step, they would blow the trumpets. And once they got to the very last step, this is what they would say. They would turn to the temple and they would say, Our fathers, when they were in this place, turned their backs toward the temple and their faces toward the east. And they worship the sun toward the east. But as for us, we are the Lord's, and our eyes are turned to the Lord. And they would say that just as the sun would rise. And it is in this dramatic hour that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. 
as the sun is rising. Not in the, in the nighttime when they're blazing the lamps, trying to, trying to make the glory shine in the temple. But as the sun is rising, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You guys are trying to do all these rituals and, and trying to do uh, all these outward actions to cover up your nakedness and your lack of peace. Jesus says, but I am the light of the world. And he demonstrated that by forgiving this woman and the rest of the crowd and all the accusers. Because now as this woman, this morning, walks home, feeling the sunlight and the warmth on her shoulders and her arms and her face, she knows that she's a free woman because Jesus forgave her. Because Jesus intervened on her behalf. And that's what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. He's the one who provides life, provides forgiveness, who provides freedom so that we don't have to be ashamed and naked and afraid anymore. The verse that is often quoted, people who are not even Christians know this verse, starts out, For God so loved the world that the world that he gave his only uh, begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that the deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be plainly seen what they have done has been done in the sight of God. We see a lot of times when we sin, I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do is pray. last person I want to talk to is God, because I feel ashamed, because I feel afraid. But that's not the reality that we see throughout the Bible, as we have seen. The reality is that God very much wants to be with us. We're the ones who are ashamed and afraid and naked. And so God comes to us and says, I am here with open arms, ready to forgive. It's the image of the Father standing on top of the hill, right, when the prodigal son comes back. The father is not there saying, what did you do with the money, and how did you spend your time, give me your diary. No, the father just welcomes him home, embraces him, and what does he do? He takes the best robe, and he covers his son's nakedness. He covers his son's shame, and he just says, welcome home, and forgives him. When this woman was finally alone with Jesus, that's when she was able to experience that freedom of forgiveness. A lot of times we're afraid to be alone with God, but it's actually other people sometimes that make us feel the worst about ourselves. It's other people that point the finger and judge us, and we do the same to them. But it's really when we're alone with Jesus that we can be restored to that full image of God that he created us to be in. And that's why he came. When you look at how Jesus came into this world, I said that he was born in a barn wrapped in swaddling clothes. But that's not all. When he grew up to be a man, I mean, you have to imagine, God was clothed with light. He had the glory of angels around him. And he willingly gave that up and came to the darkness of this earth. Took off his heavenly divine uh, robe, in a sense. And when Jesus, as a man, got on the cross, he once again took off his clothes. And he hung on the cross, naked. And... The Bible talks about how they took his clothes and they gambled it amongst them, like the soldiers. And there he hung, naked, 
and afraid and ashamed and burdened and guilty of all the sins that separated us from God. He bore it all. He exchanged his light for our darkness. This is a quote that I love from a, a writer named Ellen White. And she says, He was eternally rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become maybe, uh, made rich. He was clothed with light and glory and was surrounded with hosts of heavenly angels waiting to execute his commands. Yet he put on our nature and came to sojourn among sinful mortals. Here is love that no language can express. It passes knowledge. Great is the mystery of godliness. Of all the people, when God's, when Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. No one had the right. But Jesus did, technically. He was someone who had no sin. But instead of being the first to condemn, he was the very first to forgive. And that's the image of the light that we have to remember. Not light that exposes, but light that actually covers our nakedness. Light, you know, right now it's hard to imagine because we're in Melbourne. But imagine if you were in a really sunny, beautiful place. And you imagine yourself on the beach. And you imagine that warmth of the sun on your skin. That's what forgiveness could feel like. That's what God is wanting to, to give to us. That's the symbol that God used throughout time to help us understand that light provides life. And for us, not so much back then. For farmers, that's how you get life, is the light of the sun, growing the food, providing things that are needed to sustain life. It is when we realize how much we are forgiven and we accept the exchange that Jesus has made for us on the cross. That's when we can truly become lights of the world. You've heard that phrase, right? That we are the light of the world. Well, we can't be light of the world until we have accepted Jesus' forgiveness on our behalf. Then, as we glow in the light of his presence, we become the light of the world. This is a promise for us in Isaiah 60. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Do you feel afraid of God sometimes, or of other people, of their judgmentalism, of their criticism, what people will think? Do you feel anxious, or perhaps angry, at the problem of pain that is all around us in your own life? Then I invite you to consider basking in the light of the world to bask in the warmth of his forgiveness, to bask in the warmth of his love and what he wants to share with us, that he wants to be with us, dwell amongst us. And if you're wondering, well, how do I bask in God's light? What does it mean for me to, to be in um, his presence? I would suggest that you do this, the Bible tells us. Second Peter chapter 1. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now there isn't a physical golden temple. Now Jesus isn't physically with us. But he has sent the Holy Spirit 
to help us through the Bible understand God's character. And as we read the Bible and as we, as we spend time really meditating on who He is, the light of His glory, His character, His image will shine and will allow us to grow and experience that fullness of life that He has promised for us. So I want to invite you that if you um, are, are not already involved in a daily consistent devotional time of studying the Bible, of getting a little bit of just basking in His presence on a daily basis, um, I want to invite you to just let me or Roy know, hey, I would like to do that, where do I start? We have resources that are online or in paper format that you can borrow or use or buy. You know, we can direct you to whatever options you would like so that you can get started. We can put you in uh, a small group that can meet regularly and have Bible studies. We're happy to do personal one-on-one Bible studies with you. Whether it's a book of the Bible, John is my favorite, <laughs> but I'm happy to do any other Bible book as well. Or whether it's a concept that you're just struggling with or you know, whatever it is, I just want to invite you and challenge you to spend a little bit of time with Him every day, and hopefully more and more. We need vitamin D, right? We need the sunlight. In the same way, we need the light of the world, you know, for our nakedness and our shame and our anxiety and anger and all the things that keep us from peace to really uh, allow us to walk free and to go and sin no more. And I pray that as we bask in the light of the world, that we will truly feel the peace and the freedom and the ability to then go out and share the love of God with others. May God bless, and just anytime you can talk to me or Roy, send us a text, email, just grab me, whatever. Um, We'll be happy to do that.